This is Hannah Hassler, the host of Rorschach, Your Reality. I am so glad that you're joining me today on the podcast, and I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at Rorschach, Your Reality, on the web, www.rorschachyourreality.com, and on Facebook, Rorschach, Your Reality. You'll find I have a page as well as an insiders group feel free to join the insiders group and see what I'm posting over there. I do more video content as well as some articles and updates on the podcast, of course. Let's go ahead and get started. Today we are joined by Stacy Sims and I am so excited for everything she has to share with us about her career, her family, and her upcoming book. Um, Stacy, could you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself, maybe who you are and what you do? You got it, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I host a podcast called Diabetes Connections. It provides inspiration and information about type 1 diabetes. My son was diagnosed with type 1, which used to be called juvenile diabetes, right before he turned 2 back in 2006. He is now 14 and a freshman in high school. And as you uh, alluded, I have a book coming out. In uh, It's called The World's Worst Diabetes Mom. And <laughs> it, his real life stories of raising a child with type 1 diabetes. And my previous career was in broadcasting. I was a local TV and radio show host in, in news. Oh my gosh. Wow. And what is something that you are super passionate about? I am super passionate about um, connection and particularly in the diabetes community. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of online support. And, you know, I, it's funny that now I provide that online support with the podcast, but there, there's a lot of support that you can get on Facebook and social media, but there's really no substitute for in-person connection. And when you're raising a child with a chronic condition or you have a chronic condition, you really need that peer support. Uh, and it's not just to like hug each other and cry, which does happen, <laughs> but it's to share information um, you know, we only see our healthcare practitioners for a few minutes a couple of times a year, uh, but there's so much more to learn with a condition like type one. And so having those real life connections makes a huge mm -hmm. difference. So I, I really have, I've done a lot with that in my own life and trying to help other people. Oh, I love that. And <laughs> when I was looking at your site and I, your book, uh, which will be coming out October 10th, so it'll be available on Amazon and your site when, when this episode airs. Yeah. Uh, it's called the world's worst diabetes mom, and that just made me laugh. And what can you share? Where did the title come from? <laughs> sure. So you know, I think it's a it's a parenting thing these days, not just uh, parenting a child with a chronic condition, but in parenting, there is this crazy pressure to be perfect, mm -hmm. and we see it right in everything from, you know, how we pack our kids' lunch for school, right? All those Pinterest beautiful things. And, you know, and then if you're just putting a sandwich and an apple in, you kind of feel like a failure. You know, we see it in, um, you know, what college is your child going to go to? And we, we see all this real, uh, you know, search for perfection in parenting that I know my parents didn't worry about. And I think in the diabetes community, it's gotten to the point where we measure so much. Uh, you know, there are numbers every day and really almost every minute that we're attaching a lot of emotion to this pursuit of perfect numbers and perfection. Mm -hmm. And so the book came about because um, I'm in a 
like most parents of, of kids with diabetes, I'm in Facebook groups and we discuss <laughs> things and we debate and, you know, look, with every parenting uh, community, there are going to be agreements and disagreements. And I was having a conversation with somebody and they completely disagreed with the decision I made to the point where they were getting really ugly about it. You know, how could you do that? That was a terrible thing. You're, you know, you're really, you're sacrificing the long-term health of your child. And, that, yeah. and, I, and I, right, well, it happens. And I didn't back off like a smart person would, you know, I kind of doubled down and it, and I got ugly. And then they said, you know, you're going to kill your child. And I said, well, I must be the world's worst diabetes mom. <laughs> and then I felt like an idiot. So I deleted the conversation <laughs> and uh, you know, and I, but, I, but later that day, a light bulb kind of went on and I had been talking to a local publisher here in Charlotte, North Carolina about putting my blog posts together. I've been blogging since my son was diagnosed and she just kept saying, put them together and just publish a book. And I thought, that's really lame. Like, you know, who needs another parenting book that doesn't really say anything. And, you know, it's just a rehash. But when I thought about what this man was talking about, it hit me that the conversation around parenting has really changed. And maybe I could say something about that. So it's all about giving up the fight for perfect parenting and why I think you should too. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I absolutely love that. And I think that um, I've, I've known parents who have had kids who have been diagnosed and honestly, you know, like I just put on top of all of the just yeah. general parenting expectations, I, I've just seen a lot of kind of guilt, anger, sometimes even shame over their child's illness and everything with that and questions about what they should have done differently or what they should be doing differently and just complete overwhelm, even when there's nothing that you could have controlled or changed or done. And, and before you, you know, clearly just kind of embraced, <laughs> um, you, you know, all of the imperfections, did you experience that in your journey? I still do, Hannah. I mean, I don't think as parents, we ever fully are able to put that behind us. But I think what happened was I was, I was fortunate and unfortunate enough that my son was diagnosed before social media. Wow. Right. So in 2006, we were still before the iPhone. Mm -hmm. Facebook was still only for college students. You know, it's amazing to think about how much the world has changed. Mm -hmm. So I took my endocrinologist's advice and medical direction and I went home and I did what I was told. And I never thought about other issues that might crop up, the other nuances and other methods. And then when social media came along, I learned so much from other parents and I was so grateful. Like, oh, wow, you use that for your child's pump site to keep it on longer. What a great idea. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, you play baseball too. And that's how you follow his numbers when he's out of range of his continuous glucose monitor. Great idea. But also on social media, there's, as you know, there's the <laughs> flip side, which is, well, if you did it right, that wouldn't have happened. Or, well, my uncle's father's nephew <laughs> told him that this pink drink would cure him. You know, I mean, but yeah. even within, right. But even within the community, it, it, I think it's human nature almost to compete. Mm. So, you know, it became like, well, what are you packing for your child's lunch? I could never do that. Or I must yeah. do it this way. Or you let your child <laughs> buy lunch or, you know, it's all this stuff. So I, along the way to answer your question, I, I didn't know early on that I, I should feel guilty about some things. I felt I felt worried for my son. I felt, you know, worried about his childhood. I, I wanted him to have a really regular childhood and not miss out on stuff. And I didn't realize until later that um, I should feel bad about making some of those decisions. <laughs> but I, still, I still have a lot of, I have a lot of guilt and I have a lot of fear, but I think the difference is I just decided 
and actually I, I can kind of pinpoint when it was, I decided that I could not parent any other way. I have a child who's mm-hmm. older. I have a, a daughter who's three years older than my son. And I, I was a parent. I already knew I was a parent. This is how I parent. Mm-hmm. And so he was in first grade and we had a big snowstorm. Well, snowstorm. I'm laughing. I used to live in New York where we have actual snowstorms. Okay. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. We had like three inches of snow. Yes. But it was very exciting, right? And the kids wanted to go outside and play. And Benny, my son, was adamant that I not go with him. He was like, you can't come with me. I'm in first grade. All the kids are outside playing. We're not going to leave the block. You know, they both were begging me. We promise, put juice boxes in his, in his coat. I'll take care of him. You know, we'll check blood sugar, make sure. You know. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to go outside in the snow. Like, <laughs> I mean, I love playing with my kids in the snow, but it was fine. Like, yep. All right. So I'll let him go. And I had, a, I, I don't, I almost had a heart attack. So I let them go. I said, you have one hour, one hour. So they went, they had the best time. And, you know, luckily we have a great neighborhood. They know everybody on my block. So my son knew to knock on somebody's door if he was in trouble, you know, if he didn't feel yeah. well. And 45 minutes later, I'm thinking, I had conjured this image in my head. I'm like, he's dead. He's face down in the snow. My daughter has run off to play with her friends. You know, I mean, it's not her responsibility. She's only eight or nine at the time. Oh, but he called me and I'm thinking, this is it, right? He said, can you come get me? Are you okay? Why? He was fine. He was tired. Uh, he didn't want to walk home. <laughs> and that was a real turning point for his independence. It really was. It's funny. Hmm. Oh, I love that. And I'm sure that you learned so much about the illness, just, you know, kind of in, in your own little world with your son and your family. Um, so what inspired you to kind of take that and want to become an advocate and an educator for others? Well, it happened right away. When my son was diagnosed, I was a radio show host. I did Charlotte's Morning News on an AM station, you know, your news weather traffic station. And I was gone from work for about a week. When I came back, I explained what happened. But it wasn't the kind of show where you could talk about your personality, your personal life a lot. I mean, there's some radio shows like that, but ours, ours was not one of them. And people started emailing me and saying, I have type 1 diabetes, and here's my advice. I got letters from, um, it, was, it was amazing, it was uh, firefighters and bankers and a police officer mm-hmm. who all said the same thing, like, let your son live, don't baby him, he's going to be fine. You know, it was harder on my mother than me, which I still don't <laughs> believe, but you know, it was great. But I, I realized right away, like, I have to share these stories and I have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. So I started my blog and that kind of led me to speaking and advocating um, from there. And I, I, I kept the blog just kind of like a, a record. You know, here's what mm-hmm. we did, tried. And I was lucky enough to know some people in the Charlotte area who had children with type 1 diabetes because I was a health reporter at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was that health reporter trying to desperately figure out <laughs> what's the difference between type 1 and type 2, you know, whenever I did a story. Um, but then, of course, to live it now, you know, is something completely different. But mm-hmm. that's really how the blog got started. And then everything came from that. Wow. And I know that you had mentioned that you, you genuinely loved your career and you loved what you were doing, um, but it is something that eventually you have completely walked away from yeah. and, and you're not in that. Can you share a little bit about what ultimately kind of brought you to the walking away point? Sure. Boy, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was one of those people who always knew what I wanted to be when I grow up. I knew in seventh grade that I was going to be a TV reporter. And I did. I worked in radio when I was in college, and I interned at a local TV station. Um, I started in television shortly after graduation. And for 10 years, I worked as a local TV anchor and reporter. And then for another 10 years, I worked as a morning radio show host. 
And, and the, the last 13 years of all of that combined, I was getting up at 2.30 in the morning. So, right, my day started at work at 4 a.m. So I was up and out by 3.15. Um, it was crazy. And I really don't know how I did it, but I loved it. Um, you know, morning television and morning radio especially is where you want to be if you're in that industry. But it's really hard. Um, and during that time, I had two little kids. My husband owned a restaurant. So I worked mornings and he worked nights. <laughs> so it was really tough. We never saw each other. It was great for the kids and we had daycare. So we were, it was a lot of handing off and running around. But uh -huh. We made it work. But then when my daughter was in middle school, um, you know, she was doing these evening activities and I was really burning the candle at both ends. Plus mm -hmm. with my son having diabetes, there were nights when I was up treating a low blood sugar, treating a high blood sugar, you know, something crazy would happen, mm -hmm. a pump fail, something, you know, whatever. So I was rarely getting more than four or five hours of sleep. Ah. Yeah. And I got really sick. Uh, in the summer of 2012, um, I was hospitalized and they, it was this mysterious illness. It turns out that it wasn't all that mysterious at all. It just took them a while to figure out what was going on. Um, and I'm very open about it. I've blogged about it. I have ulcerative colitis, which is not the sexiest of diseases, you know, but um, it is what I have. And it took them a while because I didn't fit the profile. You know, I was young and healthy and I didn't have too many previous symptoms. Although looking back, I really did. I just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> dumb that way. Like a lot of women, I'm like, I'm fine. I got to take care of my kids. I'll be all right. You know, it was terrible. So I, I, I was very ill. I was very ill. I was in the hospital for two weeks. And then when I was finally at home, um, I couldn't go back to work for a month. And it was during that time I did a lot of soul searching. And I thought, you know, is this really what I want to keep doing? And I loved the job, but I just felt like it wasn't good for me anymore physically. And I couldn't see myself making the changes I needed to make. It wasn't practical to say I'm going to go to bed at 730 every night. It just wasn't going to work. So I decided that that would be it. So I left at the end of the year. And my boss was really funny when I told him, he said, nobody's going to believe I didn't fire you. <laughs> Nobody walks away from a morning radio gig like that. I mean, it mm -hmm. really was my dream job. But I remember driving home on the very last day. And I, it is almost impossible to describe the level of tiredness. The only people who know are moms, right? Mm -hmm. Moms of newborns. That's how tired you are when you work a morning radio shift <laughs> all the time. Oh my gosh. So I'm driving home and I'm thinking, remember how bad you feel right now. Remember how tired you are and how awful you feel. Because when you miss your job, I want you to think about this. But you know what, Hannah? I've never looked back. I, I mean, I miss it and I miss the great people I worked with and I miss the audience. But um, it was the right decision. And I think that in our lives, we just have seasons, right? And that was the end of that season and the beginning of a new one for me. Oh, I love that perspective. And and for listeners who might be kind of having similar struggles, maybe with the weight of a career that on one hand they love or they've worked really hard for. I know I, a lot of us get hung up on like all of the education that we've had to prepare yeah. us for this specific career that we're doing. <laughs> um, but at some point you also know like this is not good for me. It's not healthy. It's not right. Um, do you have any advice on how those listeners might be able to kind of navigate their way towards healthier footing? I think it's very difficult because, you know, you have been in all of that time and all of that effort. I mean, I had really, I had really fought my way, uh, especially as a woman in talk radio. I was the only woman, on-air woman on that staff. I was really one of the only women on that staff. And it had taken me a long time to get where I was. Uh, that was very difficult to walk away from. 
But I think we have to recognize that everything you've done, the education you've put in, the experience that you have, it doesn't stop counting. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't just fizzle away. It's there and it will help you in everything that you do. You know, my family jokes a lot because when I was growing up, I say I wanted to be a TV reporter, but before that, I was going to be an actress. Mm. And I was definitely going to do that. And I took acting lessons and I got headshots and I was just about to start like seeing agents and trying to book commercials when I was, I was like 13 or 12. And then I decided once I got a little bit into the business, just a taste of the other people and the competition, I was like, there's no way I can do this. Like I am not talented enough. These people are incredible. Oh, these people, they can sing, they can dance They're You know, I grew up in the suburbs of New York city. So I was seeing people, we were auditioning for Broadway shows and commercials. (laughs) Oh my God, they were amazing. And I remember saying to my dad, like, I'm this is fun, but I think this is going to be my hobby. And, and, and there's not, I'm just not good enough. And he laughed, but he said, well, all this stuff will serve you very well. And he could have been really angry because they had paid for acting lessons and voice lessons. Mm. But instead, it, it really did serve me well later on in terms of public speaking. And, you know, I'm, I'm reading, as we're speaking, I'm doing the audio version of my book. Nice. And those acting lessons are coming yes. in. <laughs> But, you know, the practical point, too, is I was in a position where I knew I could leave that job and I I could get another one. So my husband, I couldn't get the same job. I knew I wouldn't be paid as much. I knew I wouldn't. There was only that one radio job in my town. There was not, it's not like I could go over to the competition and say, I'd like to do your morning news. You know, it wasn't (laughs) going to happen. But I think it's also really important to recognize that I had the luxury of being able to say, my husband and I sat down and said, we can do this for a year. I could be completely unemployed for a year because I was also the health insurance provider. Uh, so, right? Uh, so, you know, it was, and the restaurant was up and down, but I knew we could do it for at least a year. And I also knew I could get a job. I could work in public relations. I could work, you know, whatever. I could figure something out. So I, I think that I, I don't want to be too cavalier about it because I do think sometimes we don't have those choices, mm. right? If I needed, and I actually found a job with health insurance, a part-time job with health insurance, which is crazy. Yeah. Later. Yeah. That's another story altogether. <laughs> but if those things aren't happening, you know, sometimes we do have to stay in the job that we're not crazy about mm. for a while, but it doesn't mean it's forever. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, I was pretty lucky to be able to do that. And that my husband, he decided to get out of the restaurant business very shortly after he had an opportunity um, to, you know, sell the restaurant mm. and move on. And he did that, but it wasn't enough money that we could retire on. <laughs> so then we had to do like rock, paper, scissor. Who's going to get a real job? <laughs> you know? And uh, luckily for me, I had this part-time job with health insurance, with, which bought us some time, but he got a terrific job. Mm. So now he's got the health insurance, he's got the job, and I've been able to grow my business for the last couple of years in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do if I had to continue to be that earner with the health insurance. So I, I just want to kind of pull the curtain back and, and say that I understand that not everybody has that opportunity, um, but I'm really grateful that I did. Oh, I love that. And I appreciate that so much because I, I think in the online world, you see people, you know, making strides or building, building these things. And sometimes you do just wonder like, how, how is that working? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a real balance and it's, it can be very difficult. Mm. You know, I, I, I feel like sometimes when I look back, I, I know I stayed in that job for a little bit longer than I really wanted to because of health insurance which I don't even, you know, please, health insurance tied to our jobs is a huge mistake, but that's another story for yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, I, um, for a while, my, um, 
husband work at a job that he enjoyed, but it did not have insurance and my job did. And I felt like I was burning out, but it was also like, yeah, health insurance, like somebody has got to have a job with it. Um, so yes, definitely know about that whole struggle. That's funny. Um, and as part of kind of growing your online business and platform, I know that you have a podcast and I was looking at that the other day and, um, it seemed really wonderful. And I'm sure, especially for people, uh, kind of struggling with diabetes and, and all of that. Um, when did you get started with that and how long did it take to kind of hit your stride on the podcasting angle? So I started this podcast uh, in in summer of 2015, and I had been thinking about it for a while. But honestly, the technical part of it really intimidated me. You know, I had always had, you're laughing, right? You know, I'd had a technical producer. I'd had a sound engineer. You know, I'd never, um, I'd never had to do anything. I just showed up and talked. <laughs> so I was really intimidated about the technology side. But a friend kind of walked me through it. And then I realized it's a lot easier than I thought. Mm -hmm. um, and I started right away. So I was really fortunate because when I started the show, I was already blogging, I was speaking, I was pretty plugged into the diabetes world. And I had a lot of contacts, I was able to call people up and say, hey, you want to come on the show. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it really started out um, a little slowly only because I didn't, I actually didn't put it out there and make a big launch and make it, I want to, I gotta, you know, I always, in radio, you're always your first, like two weeks, your program director knows to leave you alone because you stink. You're, you're terrible, right? I mean, even if you've been doing it forever, you're in a new city, maybe, or a new radio station, you're not the real person you're going to be. So if you go back and listen, to, and I'm sure with you too, you listen to the first two or three episodes, it's like, who is this person? You know, and then you hit your stride. Um, but I really, um, I, I really love doing the podcast and it's helped me learn so much that it's helped me with my son. I don't talk about him too much on the show. I mean, I'll share funny stories, but it's not a show about him. It's more news and information about type one diabetes. Hmm. Nice. Yes. Yes. Uh, so much good information. And I would definitely encourage anyone who has a family member or maybe dealing with that themselves because it seriously, the episodes that I checked out were very phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's interesting too, if I could just jump in a little, little platform about diabetes as well. Um, you know, and, and real quick, type one diabetes used to be called juvenile diabetes, but it can happen at any age. Here's my little PSA. Hannah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, many, many, many people over the age of 30 are misdiagnosed. Half of all new cases of type one now come in people over the age of 30. So if you've been diagnosed, someone has told you have type two, but the metformin's not working or it just doesn't feel right. Your A1Cs are still super high definitely push and get checked. Ask them, could it possibly be type one? Could it be something called LADA, which is a, a very latent form of diabetes? It's, it, it is just like type one, but while type one uh, appears very acutely in children, you know, mm -hmm. but comes on really fast. In adults, it can come on very slowly and that's called LADA or type 1.5, which I think people, a lot of people think is made up. It is not. It's a real thing. <laughs> and I, I read recently that something like 30% of all cases of type 1 in adults are misdiagnosed and can be misdiagnosed for up to 10 years, which is incredibly oh dangerous. So please, please, if, you, if that's something that you even are, are suspicious about, ask your doctor. And that's one of the things I learned on the show. I would never have known that. 
Yeah, that is so interesting. And yeah, if somebody told me they had uh, 1.5, I would think it was a joke. <laughs> right. You'd be like, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. No, we learned so much. I learned of, so there's 1.5, which is LADA. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, there's also double diabetes, which also sounds like a joke, but that uh-huh. can happen when you have type one diabetes, but then you become insulin resistant, which can happen later in life. If you have a very strong genetic propensity with type two in your family. So you can actually have type one, you know, for whatever many years, okay. and then you can have insulin resistance, which is really the hallmark of type two diabetes as you get older. Yeah. So a lot of these designations are more for insurance companies. And so your doctor can help I mean, whatever your endocrinologist is telling you is the way to go. As long as you have a really, you know, you have an endocrinologist and not just a general practitioner, but it's wild. I mean, there's gestational diabetes and there's, you know, monogenetic. there's all these different types. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. There's. Yeah, I feel like probably you could spend a whole lifetime just researching and studying in that field and and learn something new every day, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's been quite the education, especially, you know, when your child is diagnosed with type 1, they give you this three-day crash course in the hospital. It's like, okay, here's your insulin. You're going to give them shots. Here's your meter. You're going to check his blood sugar. All right, go home. Good luck. You know, it's like, what? What happened? You know, it's like drinking from a fire hose. There's so much information. That sounds so overwhelming. Oh, Oh, my gosh. And I can't imagine because it's like, you know, it's not like you can just sit and do that. It's like also you're parenting with the child. (laughs) This is the only thing happening. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow. And kind of along that vein, how do you maintain kind of your own personal life, your own sense of self when you're dealing with? a family member, probably especially a child's diagnosis um, that can feel really consuming? What a great question. You know, this is very difficult. I think it's difficult for parents in general. And then when you you add in a a kiddo with a chronic condition on top of it, it's so tough. Mm -hmm. I'm really fortunate in that I and my husband both, we're, we're really strong personalities. I love being a mom. I love parenting. I think it's the greatest adventure of my life. But it's not my whole identity and it never was. Mm-hmm. I, I was, you know, I was able to work. It made me happy. Um, you know, I have friends who stay at home and they never lost their identity. So I don't want to imply, you know, that there's anything wrong with that or that there's anything wrong with, you know, making your children your identity if that makes you happy. If, you know, and as long as you can figure out a way to detach by the time they go to college, because that's the trick, <laughs> right? My, my older child, my daughter is a freshman in college now. And I have some friends who are really struggling with that because they're like, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And that's, you got to start preparing for that before they leave. <laughs> um, you know, that's a tough one. But to answer your question, and I think this goes back to my prior to social media thing, you know, my son was two when he was diagnosed and he was in daycare. And so was my daughter. And we were very fortunate that they were able to take him back. They'd actually had a little girl there who had type one. So they had learned just enough about it to, to, they knew more than us at that point. So he was able to go back. There was one person who was willing to give him shots and check blood sugar. And then over the years, because he was there for three, four more years before he went to kindergarten, um, a bunch more people learned how to use his insulin pump and how to take Mm -hmm. care of him. And I kind of thought at the time, well, I knew nothing about diabetes. And if I can take care of this kid, anybody can learn to take care of this kid. (laughs) So I will say that I did stop using the teenage babysitters from down the street that I'd been using, but I needed babysitters because we had commitments. My husband was at the restaurant every night and for my job, I was expected to make public appearances. Mm. And plus every once in a while, we did want to go out and do something. (laughs) So I just said, all right, I need someone who cares and pays attention. 
and I talked to nursing students and I got the daycare people to help and I put an ad out um, in our local college and I found amazing young women, hmm. but mostly college students and adults who I did have to pay more uh, to take care of him until he was about eight. And then at that point, he was self-sufficient enough that he just needed someone looking over his shoulder and I could go back to the teenage babysitters. Hmm. But then when I got on social media, I found that I had been doing it all wrong because you're not supposed to let anybody take care of your child but yourself. That's another one of those world's worst problems <laughs> um, that people were saying, like, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust family members. I don't want anyone watching my child. And I was like, oh, that's not how I did it. And I really encourage parents. I Look, I, I don't know anything about other real chronic conditions. So, so let's talk about diabetes. Mm -hmm. I encourage parents with kids with type 1 to, to figure out a way to do this. It might not be paying a more expensive babysitter. It may be working with your local diabetes community to find other parents and families that you can do yeah. like a co-op, right? And you can swap out, okay, Saturday afternoon, three kids are going to be at Stacy's house this week, but next week they're all going to be at Hannah's house. So Ooh. that you know, Stacy can yes. go and hang out with her husband, you know, and that way you've got people that you know, no diabetes. Mm -hmm. You've got a peer group for your child. You know, I mean, I'm making it sound easy. It's not. <laughs> but I think it's really, really important to show your child that not only does life go on, but that you're not the only one that can take care of them. Because kids get very fearful then. If my mom is the only one that can, quote, save my life with a juice box, <laughs> then the child doesn't want to be around anybody else. And I don't think that's a great way to grow up. I think it, it instills fear. So that's another soapbox moment. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's, that's one of those things where it, you just kind of feel glad that like, oh, social media didn't exist and you didn't even oh. know what the standard was because it was exactly. another thing to stress about or feel obligated to. And yeah, when it's just like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't know about that pretend bar I was supposed to be jumping over because. <laughs> yeah. I posted recently. Um, now, I, now I really do just post all the bad stuff. And a lot of people respond very well to it. I'm not alone by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> My son is, you know, 14. And he occasionally does sleepovers. And they look a lot different than they did at seven or eight, where I was monitoring much more and checking with the parents much more. And what did you eat? And okay, it's bedtime. We need to check in. And what are you going to do with insulin tonight? Now, literally what I do at 10 o'clock, this is an agreement I have with my son. I text him and I say, you good? And you good means, is your insulin pump charged? Is it full of insulin? <laughs> did you actually look at anything? Like, are you acknowledging where your blood sugar is? And are you okay for the night? Like, do you have all your stuff? And that's it. And he self-manages. So at this last sleepover, his blood sugar was fine. He crashed. I don't know what they were doing, running around like crazy people before bed probably. But he crashed very low. And then he went back up. And by the time I picked him up, he was in a higher range for the morning than we like. But I knew what happened. He crashed and he treated a low blood sugar with quick-acting sugar. And he just over-treated because he was by himself and his brain, when you're low like that, you're not really thinking clearly. Mm. Your brain is screaming, like, give me sugar, mm. keep me alive. So he got in the car and he said, I know you saw him high. I, I over-treated. And I said, did you have fun? Are you okay? You know, and we kind of talked through it. Um, and I posted that. I posted the, the, I can see a graph of his blood sugar on my phone, which holy cow, it's amazing. That's crazy. Oh yeah. So I posted that. And I, and I told the story and I said, I think this is a great successful sleepover. You know, what do you think? And most people said, good for him. You know, that's yeah. great. There were one or two people who said, this is why we don't do sleepovers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. You, there's always, always another person. And that's right for them. That's right yes. for them. Yes.
Oh gosh. Uh, Stacy, if you could leave our listeners with a final piece of advice, what would you leave them with? Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. I know we were talking about business stuff and then I got all sidetracked on sleepovers oh, and diabetes and crafts. <laughs> I think that the idea here is just to be kind to yourself right? We are not perfect. We're not perfect in our jobs. We're not perfect in our parenting. We're not perfect in our marriages. We, we've got this strange recent phenomenon where we expect, you know, I'm going to have two beautiful children. They're going to get straight A's. I'm going to be a size four and I'm going to run a marathon. And by the way, dinner's in the crock pot. Yes. What? <laughs> what the hell? Oh, and I'm working full time. Of course. I, and, you know, and I, I think it's getting to the point where husbands are feeling this pressure too. You know, I'm going to coach the kids and I'm going to work full time and I'm going to work out. And, you know, I, I think we've, as a society, we're at the point now where there's this crazy pressure to be perfect that when you step away from it, it actually, it, it seems like, yeah, what's the right word? It's ethereal. It's not there. It's like fairy dust. Once you kind of give yourself permission to step away from it, you realize it wasn't real to begin with. It's, it's a very strange Instagram-y influencer, right? Kind of thing that we think we should be living up to. And when you give yourself permission to say, you know what? No, it doesn't hurt. You're okay. And it's, it's still something I'm learning to embrace more. But I really hope that as you listen, you'll give yourself permission to mess up, right? Try new things. Don't brush your hair <laughs> once or <laughs> twice, right? Be comfortable, you know, be healthy. I'm not saying that you should, you know, eat junk food and veg out all the time. But I, I really do think that if we recognize that, and as I said earlier, life is seasonal, you know, I'm, I'm at the point now where my youngest is in high school. I'm really interested to see what happens when he goes to college. What else am I going to discover about myself? Mm -hmm. What's he going to discover about himself, right? It's, it's a really interesting time. So give yourself permission not to be perfect in all aspects of your life. And then I think you'll really find that that is where you can flourish. Oh, I absolutely love that and, and definitely agree. We, so much of the pressures we're facing, like you say, they're not even real. They're somewhere, yeah. somewhere between our minds and social media and um, yeah. a lot of things that kind of get, get built up that we are free to walk away from at any point, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. I says the woman here, by the way, who I'll probably send you a picture for this and I got my hair done and the lighting was great. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we still can't get away from it. We really, I try, but at the same time. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Definitely check the show notes if you want links to either myself or today's amazing guest. You can like and subscribe on your player of choice. And of course, I always love if you leave a rating or review. Thanks so much. Until next time, this is Hannah.